0: The sermon text today will be found in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. Um, It can also be found in pages 824 in your pew Bible. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let the word of
1: God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, here we are now. Together in that place between your glorious cross and your glorious throne. And we pray today that what Paul said when he wrote to the Corinthians would be true of each of us, that we would not be turned aside by any lofty speech or wisdom that we would not be turned uh, to the side by any prospect of anything except anything else except knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified so that that glorious cross behind us would not be emptied of its power. We read in this text that with God all things are possible, and in you, Lord Jesus, we see that the impossible has been made possible now because of your work, that it is possible because you did the impossible for us. And so I pray that that hope would fill this room, hope in the lives of my brothers and sisters because of what you've done for them, and the way that you represent that to them this morning by the Spirit and, and hope for those not yet reconciled to you, that they would see you perhaps for the first time in their lives this morning and that they would be drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit into your kingdom. And we ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen. Well, um, I, I have been thinking a lot about my death this week which is something that I tend to do uh, before I fly. Yeah, I mean, it, it's actually not a joke, right? But it's okay, you can laugh. Uh, it's something I do, I tend to do before I fly, uh, but I should do it much more frequently, right? Because I believe James 4.14. I believe James 4.14. What is your life? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So, thinking misty thoughts this week, I, uh, I, I started to wonder, what if this were the last sermon I ever preached or that you ever heard? It's, it's something that we should both be thinking about. Uh, what if it were the last sermon I ever preached? And as I thought about that, I was very grateful to God that it would be this particular text. Because the more that I've worked with these, uh, these verses, and you remember, those of you, I mean, I know you can't believe that we ever got out of verses 1 through 12. Right? Week upon week, and we did. For those of you who are just coming in to where we are right now, we did an overview of chapter 19 on January 12th. And, uh, and then we, we skipped ahead to the, the verses about Jesus and the children on uh, Sanctity of Human Life uh, Sunday. And then we've been thinking about marriage and singleness for the last six weeks. So there are going to be some things, by the way, this morning about this exchange, these exchanges between Jesus and his disciples, Jesus and the young man, that I'm not going to touch on in this sermon because I already touched them on January 12th. So if you're wondering why I didn't talk about certain things, go back to the sermon, uh, if you dare, on uh, January 12th. But what I find so helpful about these two exchanges that uh, Matthew records between our Lord and the young man on the one hand and the disciples on the other is that they, these exchanges put on the table, squarely in front of us, in kind of a head on collision, the vast chasm of difference between what I'm going to call cartoonianity and Christianity. And what I mean by cartoonianity is uh, spiritual fiction that uses a lot of the same vocabulary that we are familiar with inside the church, but which assigns, at a functional level, very different meanings to that vocabulary. So, for example, what we're going to see is that both the young man and the disciples have uh, visions of and understandings, operational understandings that they live by of God, of themselves, and jesus, and there 's going to be a lot of disruption. there are a lot of cartoons on those issues that they are living according to and that we live according to and so what Jesus will be doing this morning, I believe, uh, friends, as he leads us through this passage, is he 's going to be leading us into a series of head-on collisions between cartoons and between reality between cartoons and reality the reality the cartoon the cartoons that we carry around of god and then the reality of who god actually is the cartoons that we carry around of ourselves and then the reality of ourselves the cartoons that we imagine Jesus to be like and then the reality of what he's like. And so he's going to give us, I believe, three big gifts of clarity this morning about each of those themes. So let's think first about God. And let's begin by looking at the cartoons of God in our passage. And we'll start with the young man. Do you notice how when the young man approaches Jesus, he brings a whole lot of theology with him? Did you notice that? He believes in eternal life. So he believes in heaven. He believes that not everyone is going to go there because he asks Jesus, what must I do? What good deed must I do to have eternal life? He knows that it's not an automatic He knows that not everyone goes there. He's a Bible student. He knows the commandments. And he leads a moral life because he knows that the commandments are not given for informational purposes only. That's a lot of theology, that's a lot of good theology. But do you notice, did you notice what the most striking feature of his theology is? I mean, the most glaringly central core of his theology, did you notice what it is? If you did, you're way ahead of the young man, because he doesn't notice it, even though Jesus tries to point it out to him twice. Because the core of his theology is the absence of God. He never mentions God even once. Did you notice that? Not even once. To be able to talk about eternal life and not mention God, why do you want eternal life? Friends, you need to think about that. Talking with spiritual vocabulary that is absent of God's presence is a cartoon, and it's not a safe one. This young man never mentions God, not even once. And he doesn't even notice that when he asks Jesus to describe for him what he must do, which commandments matter, that Jesus lists, look at the ones he lists. Uh, let's see here, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Okay, verse 18. So he says to him, uh, the the young man says, well, which ones, which commandments am I supposed to fulfill? And Jesus says, well, you shall not murder, commandment six. You shall not commit adultery, commandment seven. You shall not steal, commandment eight. You shall not bear false witness, commandment nine. Honor your father and mother, commandment five. What did he leave out? Commandment 10. You shall not covet, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But notice where this all begins in verse 17. When the young man asks him, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, why do you ask me? This is very important. Why do you ask me about what is good? Then I want you to see this next sentence. There is only one who is good. Now, if this is a fine young Jewish boy, he should recognize that what Jesus is doing is he is giving him a very important hint. He is calling him to remember the central core confession of Israel's life. Here, it's the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel the lord our god is one and so when he what what he should be noticing Jesus is very patient with him very gracious he's in, just in his responsive question he's putting on the table he's trying to carry him point him he wants him to get there on his own he wants him to get to the center of what it means to know god what it means to be an Israelite. And if he was going to think about Deuteronomy 6.4, of course, what comes right after that is the greatest commandment, Deuteronomy 6.5. And you, the deduction from the fact that the Lord our God is one is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. In other words, he gets the best and the most of you. And do you notice that when Jesus lists the commandments, he does not list commandments one through four which emphasize the vertical dimension, nor does he mention he mentions the second greatest commandment, love of neighbor from Leviticus, but he doesn't mention the greatest commandment. And do you notice the young man doesn't notice that? You see, he doesn't notice it because it doesn't matter. Something else matters to him more than God. Oh, friends... I want you to see the patience of Jesus, and I want you to be trembling because of the absence of God from this vision, this religious person, this Bible student, this believer in eternal life, this believer in heaven. None of that is good enough. In fact, when he says, what do I still lack? Oh, nothing, young man, except God. So the worst we can say about his functional theology, the one he actually lives, is that God's absent. And the best that we can say is that if God is present at all, he is very, very, very small and insignificant. That's stunning, and I want you to be sure what you're looking at. Here's an outwardly moral, conscientiously pious, very religious person for whom God at best is in the outermost edges of his life. How about the disciples? I mean... Obviously, the young man doesn't really believe what Jesus has said in verse 17. There is only one who is good. See, Jesus was saying right away, I I want to take you to God. Let's not talk about abstractions like eternal life or try to define eternal life or eternal rewards in any way that is separated from who God is. Because he is eternal life, right? This is eternal life to know Jesus Christ whom you've sent. To know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. John 17, 3. And this young man doesn't believe that there is only one who is good. And then the disciples, are they any better? Well, they, they, you know, they have a similar... They're not immune to the small God virus, are they? They are not immune to it. These are Jesus' disciples. You notice how when the young man departs in verse 22, they're surprised who can be saved they're greatly astonished look at verse 25 they were greatly astonished why because this guy looked like the ideal prospect for the movement he's wealthy he's moral Uh, you know in that culture the, the the possession of wealth was was looked on as a surrogate for god's blessing so it must be good he must be a good guy if he's wealthy and the disciples are like, that's like a prime prospect and he walked away. They're totally surprised that somebody who has a moral life like that or apparently has a moral life like that, at least on the surface, and we're going to get down into that under our next point. It's not all that it seems. I mean, what an exemplary record. He's a seeker. He comes to Jesus. Jesus. We want to give this guy a lot of gold stars, don't, don't we? He comes to Jesus. He's a seeker. He's moral. He's wealthy. And that person can't enter the kingdom of God? Jesus, we're astonished. Do you see what that means implicitly about how the disciples are still thinking? They're still thinking in very small terms about who God is. You see, they need to hear verse 17 too. There is only one who is good. Only one who is good. And then, notice Peter's appeal in verse 27. They're astonished that the young man's departed, and then they immediately try to backfill themselves. And Peter, speaking on behalf of all the disciples, he, he's very abrupt with Jesus. Do you notice that? And the word that gets translated in ESVC is the same word that in other places in the New Testament gets translated, behold. So Peter's like, well, behold! Behold! We, and the the way the pronouns are in the Greek, this is the way it sounds, behold, we have left everything. We have done, we have succeeded where the young man failed. We've done better than he, so what are we going to get? You see, what they're doing, they're just operating exactly the same currency that the young man has been operating in. That somehow, by, I mean, this is crazy when you actually slow down and think about it, but we function this way all the time. Which is that somehow, our goodness could reach God's. Friend, do you think that way? That your goodness could ever reach God's? If you think that way, you don't know God. Because look at verse 17. Let's think, we're, let's leave the cartoons now. Let's leave the cartoons of God. And let's come into the reality uh, of who he is. And the reality, I just want to take you back up into this statement in verse 17 that Jesus makes. This is where he starts with the young man. There is only one who is good. Now that needs to sink in because it is totally devastating to human pride. There is only one who is good. This is the reality. We're out of the cartoons, friends. We are now in the biblical reality. We are in the most fundamental, defining reality of the entire universe, which is that goodness is a monopoly in the universe. Goodness is a category that only has one occupant. One. That's what Jesus is saying. Only one who is good. That devastates and demolishes all our, despite what we say, despite what we say with our words, the way we live is we worship our own wills so often. Because at a de facto level, we think that we can, through our own exertions, either be good enough to stay out of trouble or be good enough to get ourselves out of trouble, to move from being in God's disfavor to being in his favor. And we think that the great fulcrum of the universe on which that transition from God's disfavor to favor turns, at a functional level, we believe that that fulcrum is in our hearts rather than God's. But there is only one who is good. When you step out of the cartoon and into reality, you discover that there is only one who is good. Friends, that truth needs to shatter us. It needs to shatter all our spiritual pipe dreams of being good enough, of looking in any way to the way we manage our own lives to secure or preserve or keep or steward God's favor. That truth, the gospel, that truth of God's exclusive goodness, that truth comes to us in the gospel and it shatters us. The gospel shatters our illusions about God, the lies that we believe about God, in order to shelter us in the truth about God. And one of the lies that we love to believe about God is that his goodness is just maybe not as good as he says it is. So then he won't care as much about my sin. He, he will, he, it will be more like something that he manages, that it's a disappointment that he manages. The cross is not about God managing his disappointments. The gospel is not good news that God is over his disappointments in us, friends. That is not what the universe is about. That is not what the gospel is about. But we love to believe that God is perhaps not as good as, as he reveals himself to be in the scriptures or at Calvary. And the second, lie we, the second reason we love to believe that lie is because then we can hold on to the illusion that we can be the heroes in our own spiritual journeys. And if that's how we think, we are living in cartoon town because there is only one who is good. We are living if we believe that. We have banked our lives. We've invested ourselves in the fiction aisles of the universe's library. If there is only one who is good, friends, then how good, just think about this, how good must he be? A couple weeks ago, Josh Thompson asked me one of the dumbest questions, and Josh, hold on. One of the dumbest questions anybody's ever asked me. Sounds like I'm gonna dig Josh. I'm not, I'm gonna compliment him. Josh comes up to me and says, hey, at the College Bible, say, hey, Pastor Mike, would you like to borrow my astronomy textbook from my class last semester? Huh? Are you kidding me? And when he finally brought it the next week, I ripped it out of his hands. There it is, astronomy today. And so last week, I was reading about the sun. And this is what I read. The sun, this is about the sun's luminosity. And the sun's luminosity is the total energy radiated from our sun in all 360 degrees, you know. So the total energy output of the sun which we only get like a little fraction of, right? And I quote, the sun is an enormously powerful source of energy. Could you do better than that? And then it got better. Every second, it produces an amount of energy equivalent to the detonation of about 10 billion one megaton nuclear bombs. Six seconds worth of solar energy output suitably focused would evaporate all of Earth's oceans. Three minutes would melt our planet's crust. Now I've been to Hiroshima and I've been to Nagasaki and I know that the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima was a 15 kiloton bomb, which means that a one megaton hydrogen bomb is 66 at least times the power of Hiroshima. So then I've got 66 every second, I've got 66, Hiroshima's times 10 billion every second. And that's the energy coming off of the sun. And our sun is a, an average sized star, and it's only one of 100 billion stars in our puny little galaxy. And when I read that, I thought about the holiness and the goodness of God. I thought about my sin. I thought about the patience of God. I thought, why is it that I am so willing to embrace wonders in the physical realm that blow... I mean, I can't do that math... 10 billion one megaton hydrogen bombs every second, that much energy. I don't, my brain cannot handle that. So why is it that I will stand in awe? Why do we, it's not just me, why do we, why are we so willing (coughs) to embrace wonders in the physical realm that blow our mental capacities? And yet, so quickly, Assume that the same isn't true of the moral realm. Why would we assume that the author of physical wonders that far exceed our ability to comprehend them, why would we assume that the author of those physical wonders would not in himself? be a moral wonder so exceedingly great so exceedingly beyond our compa- our capacities to imagine that there is no way we could ever fancy the illusion that our goodness that could come from the bottom up to him to satisfy him and i'll tell you the reason that we won't go that way is really simple we're proud Friends, our sun's luminosity, six seconds of which would evaporate all the oceans in the world, that's a nightlight compared to the moral radiance of God. That's what Jesus is saying. There's only one who is good. We dare not play games with a goodness that good. We dare not toy with a goodness that that's supreme. Friends, if Jesus is right, and I believe that he is, that there is only one who is good, then that means that all of us are equalized before God. I don't care whether you've been a missionary to Africa for 60 years. There is only one who is good. I don't care if you memorize memorized the whole Bible in Hebrews back in Hebrew backwards. I don't care if you pray for three hours every day. I don't care how pure your life is. There is only one who is good. And so we need to abandon the cartoon. We're all equal. If there is only one who is good, we're all equal. And every single one of us is on the outside of that line because there's only one on the inside of it, God himself. Friends, the goodness of God has to shatter us before the goodness of God can shelter us in the gospel. That's the foundation. That's the foundation. So that leads to our next point. Which is the Jesus' gift of clarity about ourselves. Who are we? Our cartoons of God aren't the only ones we need to get rid of. We walk around with all kinds of cartoons of ourselves. We cling to those cartoons. Friends, there's the picture. Think about this: there's the picture we paint of ourselves, for ourselves, and then there's the truth. There's the cartoon. We draw of ourselves, for ourselves, and then there's the truth. Look at the cartoons that both the young man and the disciples uh, indulge in. And it's very interesting how much they have in common. Because, you know, both the the young man and and the disciples, they both believe that they've been radically obedient for God. That's where they start. The young man is coming to Jesus. Sure, there's some disquiet deep in his soul that we'll get to in a moment, but on the whole, he is very confident as he comes to Jesus that he's been radically obedient for God. All these I have kept. And the disciples, the same thing, right? We, look at us. Jesus, behold, we've left everything. We went even further than him. They both believe, this is what's so interesting, they both believe that they're sold out for God but they're both operating with cartoons. Think about the young man. <clears throat> Not only does he bring a high um, or a large amount of theology to Jesus when he approaches Jesus, but he also brings a very high view of his own piety. But what happens when Jesus is interacting with him is Jesus peels back the, labors, uh, the, the layers, and what we find out is that this man's uh, obedience, his outward obedience, it's, it's upside down and it's outside in. What do I mean? Well, first of all, he's, uh, it, it's upside down. He thinks, he is not really absorbed, he is not really absorbed what Jesus has said in verse 17, that there is only one good, one who is good. So his basic model is giving a righteousness to God, giving a goodness to God in order to get from God, that there's an exchange between the goodness of man, little g goodness of man, and the big g goodness of God, that God accepts the currency of our goodness. He's got it totally upside down because that is not the way goodness flows in the universe. If there is only one who is good, then that means that goodness necessarily, by definition, always moves from the top down and never from the bottom up. So he's got that all messed up. But more fundamentally and much more dangerously, the young man has his vision of what obedience is. Uh, to God looks like. He has it outside in. And so you notice that when Jesus uh, speaks to him he mentions the fifth through the ninth commandments and love of neighbor but he omits very interestingly the tenth commandment. And at first we don't understand why he's doing that. But of course he omits the tenth commandment because that's what's got his heart. And Jesus reveals that when he calls him to sell his possessions and to come and follow him after giving those possessions to the poor. You see, the man's view of righteousness is that outward obedience is good enough. And what Jesus is going after is his heart You see, because coveting is a sin that happens here. It's essentially invisible to men, but always visible before the eyes of God. The love of God is essentially invisible to men, but visible only to God. So what Jesus is going after through those omissions is the reality of the young man's heart. He thinks that outward obedience is enough. He thinks that in this picture of himself that he has drawn and lived according to this cartoon, that he's actually a hero. He's scrupulously observant of at least some of the commandments. He's a pious guy. He's even thinking about eternal life, right? I mean, he's a rich guy. He's got a lot to think about, investment portfolios to manage, lands, all those things. And guess what? It's a priority for him to ask about eternal life. Don't we want to commend him? I mean, at one level there's this outward projection of security, but deep down there's something, there's something, there's something in the back of his mind it bothers him, he knows. Cuz otherwise why would he come to Jesus? He knows that his possessions have his heart. He knows that. He knows because he doesn't say, "Well, you left out the 10th commandment." See, his outward obedience can't, can't answer for, can't compensate, can't for, it can't cure the cancer of his covetousness in his heart. And that's what Jesus is exposing him to. When he calls him in verse 21 to sell his possessions, to give to the poor, and then to come and follow him, what Jesus is really doing is handing him an x-ray of his heart saying, hey, this is who you really are. This is not the cartoon." And when he is faced with the reality of who he is, he flees. Do you see that? He thinks he's got an outward obedience that's good enough. What about the disciples? Well, you know, the disciples are very similar to the young man, because the young man thinks that he's got a moral claim that he can make on Jesus, at least for Jesus's approval. But the disciples take it even further, because you know what's, you know what's particularly uh, challenging about the disciples here, what is, uh, you could even say dangerous, is that is that if the, un, if the young man is focused on outward obedience and Jesus is revealing that the real problem is his heart and that he, for all of his outward obedience, has been holding his heart back from God when God created him with a heart so that his heart would be God's throne room. That's why you have a heart, by the way. That's what the greatest commandment means. It's saying, do you know why I made you? I made you so that your heart... So that your mind, so that all your capacities, they'd be my throne room. That's why you have a heart. That's why you have a soul. That's why you have a mind. That's what the greatest commandment means, and this young man doesn't know it. But in the disciples' case, what they're looking to is not just outward obedience, but what I'll call Jesus' word obedience. And that's deadly. Because they're turning to Jesus saying, hey, not only were we obedient, but we were obedient to you. So what are we going to get? As though their obedience to Jesus, now now am I getting close to home for any of you? Their obedience to Jesus is is what they present to Jesus as the basis for their reward from Jesus. Jesus or his approval. In other words, we've sold out for you, Jesus. We are sold out for you. We have left everything. We have obeyed you. We have given you what that young man wouldn't. We've given you our hearts. Now, let's just put aside for a moment the irony that it is Peter who says this. We know what's come before in chapter 16. We know what's coming with Peter. Let's put that irony aside, friends. And think about this. Think about what a cartoon that is and what a dangerous cartoon that is. And what does Jesus do in response with both of them? What he does with both of them is brings them out of the cartoon visions of themselves, either their outward obedience or their Jesus-word obedience, and he brings them face-to-face with the reality of eternity. Once you step out of the cartoon then the weight of eternity starts to press in in both these exchanges. Because not only does the gospel shatter the lies that we believe about God's goodness, but but mercifully also shatters the lies that we are so eager to believe about our own goodness. There's the picture we paint of ourselves, for ourselves, and then there's the truth. And God has to shatter that cartoon in order to shelter you in reality. Did you notice how often the themes of eternity and eternal life and eternal judgment are woven through both of these exchanges? With the the young man, eternal life is on the table, verse 16. And then Jesus says in verse 17, if you would enter life, he's speaking about eternal life. And then later on, he says, if you would be perfect, right, keep the commandments, or if you would be perfect and you would have treasure in heaven, you've got to sell all that you possess. You see, Jesus is speaking to him about the reality of eternity, how much eternity is worth here. He's saying to the young man, everything you decide to do now in the present should be determined by the nature of eternity and the nature of eternal rewards. Everything you do in the present should be shaped by them. It gets even more specific uh, with his disciples, right? Because he speaks to them about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God in verses 23 and 24. He speaks to them of the new world, right? Look at verse 28, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, he's very graphic. In the regeneration, he's talking about the age to come. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. And notice the vision. He is walking them through this picture. These disciples who've associated themselves with somebody who's going to be crucified. And he walks them into the picture of the future. And he's very graphic in response to Peter's question. He doesn't blow Peter's question off. He's very gentle with the disciples as well, isn't he? Just as he was with the young man. And what he does is he says, let me paint a picture for you. And I'm telling you this, and I guarantee it on the basis of who I am. Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, the Son of Man, the glorious figure of Daniel 7, who receives from God all the kingdoms and all the peoples and all the languages and all the nations as his own possession, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. And the picture is of him judging, right, the nations. You who have followed me, you fishermen and you nobodies you who I chose, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life, but many, who are first will be last and the last first. You see what he's doing is he's saying, I need, I'm calling you to think about eternity. I'm calling you to think about the reality of eternal judgment. Now, friends, those words, we, we are in such danger inside the church because those words, eternal life, eternal judgment, the throne, even the picture, right? The picture of the Son of Man sitting on his glorious throne, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So often, those feel at a functional level to us like cartoons. But you know, Jesus isn't treating them like cartoons. He's, and they feel to us because we're so familiar with them at one level, right? They feel hollowed out, they don't feel heavy. We assume we have tomorrow. When somebody asks, what is your life? You say, well, 80 years. Be good, and with the the improvement in medical technology, maybe 100. That's the answer we give, and God says, hey, you're a mist. Jesus is taking those truths that we have hollowed out, and he is graciously filling them in. Friends, he is promising us that that great day is coming. That great day is coming. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Or later on in Romans 14, he says, so then each of us will give account of himself to God. Friends, every single person is going to stand before that glorious throne of the Son of Man, Jesus is saying, and every single person, young, old, Christian, non-Christian, is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and there will be no Fifth Amendment available. You will testify, and you will be scrutinized. Every decision, every moment of your life, every action of your life, your entire life, all the facts of your life and my life will be scrutinized by a perfectly holy omniscience. And do you imagine that on that day, any of us will be able to bring anything in our hand of goodness that we have grown that can bear the weight of eternity? Cartoons cannot bear the weight of eternity. Cartoons cannot bear the weight of the scrutiny of a perfectly holy omniscience. Friends, that day is coming, and you and I are not going to be able to bring an outward obedience, a merely outward obedience. See, I I kept the rules. We don't get to. We're not going to stand on that day if what we bring is outward obedience. I had led a moral life. If if the way you've led your whole life is keeping your heart back from God, and if you believe that your goodness is good enough, you've kept your heart back from God. The outward obedience, like the young man, is not going to be good enough because God made you for all your capacities to be rightfully submitted to Him. You see, you and I have no moral claim upon God in ourselves because of the way we've managed our lives. No one who gives an account of himself to God on that day as they stand before the judgment seat of Christ is going to be able to make a claim, a moral claim upon God based upon how they have managed their lives. No one. So outward obedience isn't going to do it. Nor is Jesus' word obedience going to do it either. Because, friends, where did that come from? I mean, if you're a Christian, where did your Jesus word obedience come from? Who gave it to you? He gave it to you. You and I are branches. Whatever fruit comes off of our life is not the branch's fruit. It's the vine's fruit. It comes through us, not because of us. And so friends, I say to my Christian brothers and sisters, I say it is time for us to get all the leaven, the cartoon leaven of our own goodness out of our lives. It's not our piety. It's not our morality. It's not our theology, oh my young friends in particular. It's not your theology. You're not going to be able to say, Jesus, I was a five-pointer. Because his response is going to be, why? Because I made you a five-pointer. You can't say, Jesus, I believed your word was the word of God and I defended its inspiration and its infallibility and its, its errancy all my life. I preached it. He says, well, why? Why did you believe that my word was inerrant and infallible and why did you preach it? Because I set you apart for those purposes. You say, but I led a pure life. And he'll say, do you know why you were pure? Because I did not lead you into temptation, and it was I who delivered you from evil. Friends, when you are summoned before that throne to give account of yourself to the only one who is good, do not imagine that there is anything that you or I could ever regard as goodness in ourselves or from ourselves that could ever bear the weight of that eternity. Friends, God's goodness must shatter us before and in order to shelter us. So let's go to our third point now, which is the clarity that Jesus brings us about himself. what we've seen so far this morning, if you're tracking, is that Jesus' statement, what I've been arguing is that Jesus' statement to the young man in verse 17, that there is only one who is good, that that statement deconstructs all the cartoons we have of God, all the cartoons we have of ourselves, and also leads us away from the lies that we tend to believe about Jesus, okay? And what we encounter here, the cartoon of Jesus that we encounter here is a very familiar one. It's widely held, and it comes out of the young man's mouth right as he approaches Jesus, and it's this. Hey, Jesus, you're a teacher. I'll approach you as a teacher, but you know what's interesting? The word that he uses for teacher is not rabbi here. He uses a word that the disciples never use in, <clears throat> in the Gospel of Matthew. He uses a word that conveys respect but a lack of commitment. If if he had called him rabbi, then he would be acknowledging that Jesus was his teacher to whom he owed some kind of loyalty as a disciple. But there's a a respectful lack of commitment here. And so he treats Jesus just as a teacher. But is Jesus, uh, and, and in the end, right, that's why he leaves. He leaves because because he thinks that Jesus is just a teacher, and he doesn't like what Jesus has taught him. He doesn't acknowledge who is actually addressing him. So his departure, friends, when the young man leaves, his departure from Jesus is a caricature of Jesus. Because what he's saying is, hey, you're just a teacher. You're not worth my possessions. You're not worth my sacrifices. You're not worth me changing my life to follow you. But of course, he's wrong, isn't he? I mean, that's his subjective evaluation, but objectively, he's he's wrong. So what he's doing is he's holding on to a cartoon vision of Jesus. Where Jesus is just not that big, and all he is is just one more teacher. And when I don't like the answer that he gives me, I'll go elsewhere. You know, dealing with Jesus just as a teacher, you know, uh, I know many of you have read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And in the section of Mere Christianity where Jesus addresses this very common statement that people make. Well, I'm willing to uh, accept Jesus as a teacher, but not to yield to him as Lord and God. (laughs) Lewis basically says, are you nuts? That's the one option. He says, well, number one, he says, that's patronizing nonsense. And he says, that's the one option Jesus hasn't left open to us. He is either a lunatic to say the things that he says, or he's a liar on the level of the devil from hell, or he's the Lord. But the one thing he's not is just a teacher. And you notice he makes that point very emphatically with both the disciples we've seen, how he says, hey, I'm the son of man, verse 28. I am the fulfillment of that figure from Daniel 28. I'm no mere teacher. I'm going to be the king who receives from the Father all the nations and all the peoples and all the tribes and all the languages, and I'm going to get there through the cross. They're not really listening to that part yet, but that is how he's going to come into his kingdom. But he also says it to the young man, very interestingly, and go to verse 21 with me, and I want you to look at this very carefully Take a deep breath, because I know we're almost done, but this may be one of the most important, well, it is one of the most important points in what I want to share with you this morning, so I want to make sure that you see it. Father, help us to see what's being said here. Verse 21, now I want you to notice something. Jesus said to him, now addressing the young man, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And what I want you to see is that there's, there's essentially two commandments that he gives that relate to two different things here. The first commandment or set of commandments is go sell what you possess and give to the poor. In other words, you got to deal with this, this coveting problem you have. See how that corresponds to one of the commandments that Jesus omitted in the earlier listing. He didn't list the 10th commandment. So now what Jesus calls him to do in order to be perfect and fully mature, he says, you got to meet that head on. That stronghold, that idolatry in your life, you got to meet it head on. But notice the second commandment. The second commandment that Jesus gives at the very end. He says, come, follow me. Now that's very interesting because his first commandment to the young man addresses the tenth commandment that he omitted. But what about all the commandments about God? The greatest commandment, Deuteronomy 6, 5. What about commandments 1 through 4? You see, I think the implication of what Jesus has said to the young man here is he's saying all the God commandments, if you will, the greatest commandment, the the commandments 1 through 4, to have no other gods uh, before me except God, to, to not make any graven images, to not take the name of the Lord in vain. Those commandments, he says, those are fulfilled when you come and follow me. In other words, what Jesus is declaring about himself is he's no mere teacher. He is Yahweh himself who is calling the young man to fulfill the greatest commandments by following him, giving to Jesus his love, giving to Jesus his allegiance and his loyalty. Friends, if he is Yahweh himself calling the young man to love him, then he is way way, way bigger than a teacher. Jesus is calling him and calling each one of us this morning away from a cartoon version of Jesus in which he's manageable, in which we go to him for instruction only, helpful information. Because what Jesus wants is worship. All of it And you see what this means, friends? If if you think about how radical what Jesus is saying to the young man is, then that takes us full circle back to verse 17. Because that means that when Jesus is saying there is only one who is good, he's describing himself. And that right there means that Jesus himself is the embodied fulfillment of all the goodness of God. You see, you want to know how good God is? Look Jesus Christ in the eye. You want to know about the goodness of God? You want to know how high it is? You want to know how vast it is? You want to know how generous it is? You want to know how kind it is? You want to know how holy it is? Look at Jesus Christ in the eye. Look him in the eye. So you can see both the magnitude of God's goodness and you see its character. Because friends, think now about what this means as we look forward in Matthew's gospel to the cross, to what Jesus is going to do, to Calvary. Think about what that means. If Jesus himself is the only one who is good, then the apex of understanding God's goodness happens there. You want to know the goodness of God? Well, well, let's unpack this. The treasure of heaven himself. The only one who is good. What Jesus' ministry is about is he is the treasure of heaven who is willing to sell himself so that sinners like you and like me can have treasure in you see, he's the richest ruler of all. He had the greatest possessions of all. Think about what the Son of God possessed in eternal glory with his Father. Friends, you need to think about that with me. Think about his, the great possession of his glory. Think about the great possession of his eternal A fellowship and intimacy with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Think about the adoration that he received as the eternal Son of God from all the angels and all the archangels, all the company of heaven, the worship and the honor that he received, the recognition that he received. Think about the great possession of his holiness. And none of those great possessions held him back from coming. Not one of them held him back. He's very different from the young man who, when he counted the cost of Jesus, said, He's not worth my treasure but when the Son of God counts the cost. He says that laying aside my equality with God, emptying myself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in the likeness of human form, becoming obedient even to the point of death, becoming obedient even to the point of being crucified and mocked on a cross even to that point i will sell all i have and give it to the poor you see jesus gave everything for those who had nothing to give him except his sin do you realize that we have no goodness to give him we have nothing to give him we have nothing except our sin and he came and he gave and he sold himself over and over and over again. Friends, you've got to leave the cartoon of Jesus. This is no teacher. He's the king. And you know what the most shattering thing about the goodness of God is? The most shattering thing, I think, about the goodness of God is that Jesus knew. Jesus knew that he himself would be shattered by the goodness of God on the cross. See, that to me is the most humbling, shattering aspect of the goodness of God is that Jesus Christ, as he's, Growing up and as he's maturing, every time he hears his name called, he knows, I came to save my people from their sins. I came, Jesus, come over here. I came to save my people from their sins. Jesus, come here. I came to save my people from their sins. He knows that what he has left heaven for, what he has left all of his great possessions for, is to be shattered on the cross by the goodness of God. You see, it's not the badness of God that shatters Jesus on the cross. It's the goodness of God. The goodness of God's holiness is what shatters Jesus on the cross. The holiness of God is the most beautiful thing in the universe. And it's that goodness that shatters Jesus It's the love of God, it's the goodness of the love of God for sinners, his beauty of pouring mercy out upon those who do not deserve it. All the care that you see Yahweh exhibiting and declaring for the poor and the sojourner and the widow and the orphan and all the disenfranchised categories across the Old Testament, all of that is rehearsal. All of that is a dim echo for what the Son of God is going to do for the poorest and the most vulnerable and the least possessed of all beings in the universe, sinners before a holy God. And so that that shattering of Jesus by the goodness of God, friends, this is the beauty of the gospel, right? Right? that God shatters His Son so that sinners might be sheltered eternally in the Son. Because Jesus was shattered, as he took our sin on on the cross and was judged in our place. You know what that means? That shattering is transformed by the grace of God into an eternal shelter for everyone who will turn away from their sins and look to this decisive act of God in Christ as their shelter. We, in the amazing wonder of the gospel, we are given the opportunity to take shelter in the judgment of God. The judgment of God upon Jesus was the judgment of God against all the sins of all of Christ's people for all time. And so we can lay hold of that judgment of God. We make a moral claim upon God, but we make it not on the basis of how we have managed our lives. We make a moral claim appealing to God's justice, God's righteousness, God's incomparable goodness, And we say, you declared it was finished. You declared that if anyone believes in the Son, he will have eternal life. I stake my eternity on your faithfulness to that promise and that because the Son was shattered, I will be eternally sheltered. Friends, that's the call. You have no idea whether this is the last sermon I'll ever preach or whether it's the last sermon you'll ever hear. I don't know it and you don't know it either, but I stand before you this morning as the ambassador of Jesus Christ, and I call you in his name to leave the cartoons. Leave the cartoon of yourself, leave the cartoon of God that you carry around, and leave the cartoon of Jesus Christ, and step into reality, the reality of his gracious reign, because Jesus Christ, in in Jesus Christ, God was in the world reconciling the world to himself, not counting the world's trespasses against them. That's what God was doing. Why? Because of his goodness, not because of ours. And God was doing that, and he's entrusted to us a message of reconciliation. And so every one of Christ's people who's been the recipient of his mercy is an ambassador for that king. And so in his name, I Beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God because he made him who knew no sin. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. No words and no gifts that we can ever give you are good enough by themselves. Our only claim upon you is the claim of your own heart's promises to us. Thank you for making an eternal shelter for us, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name.